It's great to have you here any morning, but it is special to have you here this morning. And our text for this morning is from the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, the, the text in its entirety is there in the bulletin. You can just follow there. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Uh, if, if you were trying to sound like someone from a Shakespearean play or trying to sound like somebody from another period, you might use the word forsooth uh, because no one uses the word forsooth anymore. The only place I know where forsooth is used are people making fun of like Shakespearean plays or something. And, uh, and if I'd actually asked Jake to look up that word this morning, what does forsooth mean? I found out it means for truth or indeed... I know that's fascinating. Let's close in prayer. Um, but, you know, it's just not, it's, it just seems like the way, uh, the, what our ears are used to, it just almost seems like Elizabethan filler, but it actually meant something. It meant indeed for truth. There's a word that is just, it's just uh, scattered and sprinkled all through the Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke. And when you read it, it can almost sound like the biblical equivalent of forsooth, like it's just kind of filler. The word is behold. And the word actually has a meaning. It means look. Notice this. Look at it. This text, along with huge chunks of, uh, of Matthew, has that word in it multiple times. And here's what I want, I want to ask us to consider before I read this, is... It's there because it actually means something. It's not the biblical equivalent of forsooth. And, and here's the amazing thing. When it says behold, it's not just calling the women in this passage to see something. There's two women in this passage, who, and they're told, behold. But not only are they being told, behold, we as the readers of the Gospel of Matthew we're being told to see something. We're, we're kind of being grabbed by the lapel by Matthew and being told, look at this and notice it. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Of course, this comes after the crucifixion. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear in great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet 
and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we can open our eyes and and physically we can see the words on this page, but what you want us to, to see is with the eyes of our heart. And as strange as it seems, we seem to have so little control over those eyes. They're distracted, they're, they're clouded, they're obstructed. So, Father, you who give vision to the blind, I pray that you'll give vision to the eyes in our hearts to see this morning what we need to see, even if this is very familiar, to see what we need to see. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a little while ago, one of our elders forwarded me an excerpt from a blog he had come across, and there was a post by a woman, and uh, it was a woman who grew up Hindu, and she had an interesting, you know, what's called now a faith journey. She went from Hinduism to Baha'i to Christianity, and so she was reflecting on what this, you know, what this process was like and, and what it felt like from the inside examining Christianity when you didn't grow up with it and you don't know the, the jargon. And here, I just want to read you part of her description of what it's like to be around Christians or preachers when they use kind of Christian code language and they don't explain what they're talking about or why, why what they're talking about is important. Um, here's a quote. She says, Christians claimed that Jesus was God, was the Son of God, and all this stuff about a trinity, which I had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed this resurrection, which made no sense to me. Not that I didn't believe Jesus couldn't rise from the dead if he were God, but I had no idea what possible relevance that could have. I assumed all these things were myths with no more relevant deep meaning than a fairy tale, except maybe with metaphorical spiritual meanings. I wasn't even interested because I never understood what importance that event should have to me. No Christian had ever explained it to me. They just say crazy stuff like, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and now I'm saved. Jesus died for your sins. Don't you want to be saved? Then they paint portraits of hell. It all made zero sense to me. Just as though someone said, My red balloon popped, and then candy canes fell out of the sky. Your rabbit is winking at me. Doesn't all this make you want to buy a new Nissan? She said, I'm not exaggerating. This nutshell gospel message makes absolutely no sense to a non-Christian, no real meaningful sense anyway. You have no idea what they are so excited about. And she says this, so Jesus rose from the dead, big whoop. So what? Good for him, but so what? And if, if you want proof that that's, that that's not a stretch, that that's not just one person's experience, I talked with a man who planted a church in Greenwich Village in New York, which is what we would, you know, we would not call it Bible Belt territory. And uh, so he just really kind of got all kinds in this church, and a lot of people without church backgrounds, they don't know the lingo, they didn't learn all the vacation Bible school stories. And so it was Easter, he just preaches his heart out on the resurrection. And this guy is, you know, he's leaving the worship place and uh, shaking hands with him, and he didn't say this to be a jerk. But in honesty, and because he didn't really know like how 
in some ways inappropriate this was. He said, okay, I get it. He rose from the dead, but so expletive what? And he was being honest, just saying, okay, I get it. The, the Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. I have no idea why everyone goes crazy about this being such a huge deal. I, I don't know how to connect the dots to my failures or bills or, or anything like that. And I suspect that is a lot of us. Like we, and, and I think that can be some of the sense of the pressured feeling of, I've got to be up. I've, I've got to be up this morning. I've got to feel Eastery, whatever that is. And because it's Easter. Why is it Easter? Because this is when we celebrate the resurrection. And why is that important? Because it's important. And I really don't know why. We of all people need to see this. I, it, if you had someone who read New Testament Greek, and, and was a lit major, they could spot this in their first reading. This text is loaded with, with uh, words about seeing and observing. I'm not going to go through all of them. The word behold in English is there three times. In Greek, it's there four times. How does it start? After the Sabbath, toward the dawn uh, of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. How does the text end? There they will see me talks about the appearance of the angel. It's just all through there. There's something here that we're supposed to see. And in my own study this week, I came across a scholar who said that that word behold, which is all through the Gospels, that Greek word doesn't appear in any other Greek secular literature. It's unique to the New Testament. That over and over and over and, I mean, scores of times that the writer is saying, I want you to see this. I want you to see what happened. What are we supposed to see? What does it have to do with us? So let's look at this. First off, two things. What did the women behold? And then what do we as the readers behold? What did the women behold? And then what do we as the readers get to behold? First off, the women Two women, Mary Magdalene and another Mary. There's several Marys in the Gospels. This is not Jesus' mother. This is another Mary. They go to the tomb early, 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 uh, the day after the Sabbath. What did they see? Here's, here's what I, I want to look at a couple of things. Reassurance and resurrection. Reassurance and resurrection. And what, what do we mean by reassurance? The text starts with some incredibly supernatural events. And let me just say that from the get-go. The Bible never apologizes for supernatural content, nor does it explain it away. The The explanation it gives is that God exists. And there is both the seen and the unseen. There's things we understand and things we don't. So the text begins with Romans posted at the tomb... Uh, the gospel writers say that this stone that was over the tomb was big. It was a, a mega stone, a great stone. Roman soldiers po- posted there, the tomb was sealed, and an angel of the Lord descended. And angels, according to Scripture, don't look like angels in art. C.S. Lewis said when you see angels in art, they look like the first thing they would say is, they're there. And what's the first thing they always have to say in the Scriptures? Don't panic. 
Well, he doesn't say don't panic to the Roman soldiers. He comes down and think about this. You've noticed the pots in front of, of the entrance, and you may have wondered what those are for. Those are for snipers. I'm kidding. Those are, those are going to have plants in them. But th- those pots in the front of the building, when they, I was in my study the day they were unloaded. They were so heavy that when they came off the trailer, they shook the entire building. The stone in front of this tomb would be bigger and heavier than that. This angel comes down, and he radiates light like lightning. I guess an intense bluish-white light. And walks up to this stone and rolls it out of the way. And did you get the other detail? And then he sat on it. It's such a strange... Several commentators said it seems to be a gesture of triumph. It's almost an angelic way of saying, angel of the Lord one, tomb zero. You know, and he sits there. And these Roman soldiers absolutely come apart. The word about them trembling is similar to the word for earthquake. Almost a little play on words that there's the great earthquake and the appearance of the angel and then they quake. And if you compare this account to the other gospel accounts, apparently they're the ones that saw the angel arrive and once they revived, they ran for their lives. But then the women arrive. Now, to the Roman soldiers who were scared to death, there's no reassurance given. But when the women get there, what does the angel say to them? Don't be afraid. When they see Jesus, what does he say to them? Don't be afraid. And there's another detail. It's a detail of reassurance. And I'm not trying to read something into the text that's not there, but think about what is the first thing that Jesus said to these women when they see him in his resurrected state? What's the very first thing he said? Greetings. That, I think that is the strangest thing. If you had died and came back from the dead and you had two people that you love dearly and they love you dearly and they're followers of yours, you're back from the dead. You were in a tomb yesterday, at least your body was, and you see them... What would you say? Wouldn't you say, I'm alive? And he says, greetings. Now think about this. If, if, you, if you walked into a funeral home to see a very, very close friend who had lost um, an, a mutual friend or a, a spouse or a child, if you walked into a funeral home and you came up to your close friend and said, greetings, totally inappropriate. Why is it inappropriate? Because this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is a terrible time. But if things are fine and things are proceeding according to plan and you walk up and go, how's it going? Greetings. It's absolutely acceptable. When he walks up to the, or when these women walk up to him and he says, greetings, it's a way of saying everything, literally, everything is proceeding according to plan. Reassurance and resurrection. What what does the angel say to them? He was crucified. He's risen. He's not here anymore. Look inside the tomb and see his body's not there anymore. Now, we know that that means because he's physically risen from the dead. They just know the body's not in there anymore. When were they convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus? 
Look in verse 9. And behold, there it is again, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Now, if you don't know, if you've never been to an Easter service and you've never read the gospel accounts, you're living it out. And maybe you had heard that Jesus taught something about, I'm going to rise from the dead. You have, like his other disciples, like the apostles, you have no idea what that means. And all of a sudden, you see a man that you saw crucified. These two Marys in Matthew 27, it says, watched him crucified. And you come up to him, and you kneel before him, and you reach for his feet. You have to believe that there was a part of them that thought, their hands were going to do this. And their hands did this. That physically, there was a man there. What does that mean for us? The reassurance and the resurrection, the physical <clears throat> bodily resurrection. First, the reassurance. Let, let me ask you this question. Why was the angel so terrifying? Do angels have glory and light in and of themselves? No. Angels have glory and light and power because they reflect God. And they've been in the immediate presence of God. So you might say just the afterglow, just the reflection of the glory of God. When the Roman soldiers saw it, it sent them into a catatonic state, as it should. The earth trembles in the presence of the Lord, the psalm says. And it literally did that morning. And you've got that same God. This is the incarnation. That same God, fully God, but fully man, coming to these two followers of his, two women followers, and saying to them, listen, do not be afraid. And I want you to go tell, the angel said, my disciples, Jesus says, go tell my brothers, you know, the ones who abandoned me, the ones who vowed will never leave you, go tell my brothers that I'll meet them. Everything about that, what is it saying? Because we're sinners, we should be terrified in the presence of the living God. Here is the living God incarnate saying what? Because of what I've done, because of what I've finished, and because I am risen, because everything is happening that I said would happen, don't be afraid. This is, this is the evidence that not only did He finish the work to take away our guilt, but that He loves us and is for us and is still pursuing us. Now, the physical resurrection, why is that so important? Uh, where, where, where do we begin? But let's at least say this. I want my sins dealt with. The church wants its sins dealt with and taken away. But you know what? We can't see our sins. We see the effects of them. 
We see manifestations of sin and consequences. But you, the, sin is invisible. You can't see it as an object. But there are all these things that I can see and I want to keep seeing them. If, you, if you're sitting here and if you've ever felt like, okay, yeah, I want my sins taken away, but I don't want to sit on a cloud with a harp. I think I will be bored to death. I, I mean, I want to know God. I want to sing His praises. I want my sins taken away. But I want there to be uh, dogs and land and creeks and cities and coffee. I want all that. That would be home to me. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate demonstration. It's the ultimate manifestation that what Jesus came to do was not just take care of sins, although He did that. For His people, He took care of all of them, past, present, and future. But His physical, bodily resurrection is called in the New Testament the first fruits. It's an Old Testament term, the first fruits are the first yield of the entire harvest. The very first literal fruits, vegetables, wheat, olives. And they're an indication that all this crop is real and it's really going to come. We know it because we've got the first demonstrations of it. His resurrected physical body is the first fruits that one day, if you are in Christ and you are depressed, you will not always feel this way. If you are sick, you will not always be this way. If you are addicted, you will not always walk that way. If there's fragmentation of relationships all around you, one day you will live out what the Bible calls shalom. Peace with God and peace with man. Human flourishing on every level. How do I know that? You know it because when they grabbed for those feet, feet were there. What do we behold? What do we behold as the, uh, as the readers? A couple of things. Reliability and response. Uh, what do we mean by reliability? Well, in verse 7, the angel gives uh, a job. He gives a task to these women. He says, and I love this detail. I don't know if you caught this when we were reading it. In verse 7, he says, Go quickly, quickly, and tell his disciples. And then what does it say in verse 8? So they departed quickly from the tomb. It's almost the sense of they're listening to the angel, and he gets through with his message and says, Okay, see, I have told you. And they kind of go, Off to tell the disciples. Go, right now. But what is Matthew letting us see? Who are the first witnesses to the resurrection? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. So what? As we have pointed out before in other Easter sermons and other gospel sermons, in that cultural setting, the testimony of women was inadmissible. In religious courts or in civic courts, like it or not, that was the cultural moment that they're living in. But when you read the gospel accounts, they make a point of the fact that the first witnesses to the resurrection are women. 
And who else do we... Who else is there? Let me put it this way. Who is not there? This is like one of those things. It's like the nose on your face. You can't see it if you don't stop and think about it. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? This is similar to who's buried in Grant's tomb. (laughs) Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the Matthew who is the tax collector... This is one of the twelve apostles. And what is Matthew? One of the twelve apostles. One of the guys who the night before is saying, you know, when he says, all of you are going to leave me. When Jesus says, all of you are going to leave me. You know, the shepherd will be struck and all the sheep will scatter. Not just Peter. Everybody's saying, no, never. We're all going to go the distance. We'll never leave you. Matthew is one of the guys saying that. And what is Matthew letting you see? He's not there. Now, let me ask you this. As is a common um, accusation, it's a historic accusation, it's also sort of um, regained currency in in, um, certain kinds of liberal scholarship. I don't mean politically liberal, I mean academically liberal, theologically liberal. The Gospels are portrayed as documents that were written well after the facts, and they were written with an agenda to put power in certain people's hands. Uh, it's a narrative that's crafted. It's not an eyewitness account. It's a, it's a narrative with an agenda for power that may or may not correspond to any facts. Let me ask you something. If you're writing an account in that cultural setting, would you have women be the first witnesses? Would you write it in such a way that over and over and over <clears throat> you're embarrassing yourself? You're saying women were there and I was not. What what is that telling you? That's telling you that it's an account of what actually happened, even at personal pains to the writer. Reliability. But the other is response. The, The women are not watching themselves respond to the angel and to Jesus, but we're watching them respond to the angel and to Jesus. What's the response? Look in verse 7. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. And once again, he says, Don't be afraid. Now, when the angel said to them, shining like lightning, don't be afraid, and they run off to do this task, they're still afraid, but they're joyful. And then they meet Jesus, and and they grab his feet and worship him, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go on with your task. Go tell them what you're supposed to tell them. You have to believe at that point that if the fear didn't disappear, it diminished, but what did they still have? What a great little phrase. Great joy. That word great, just in the last few verses, has already cropped up several times. What size was the stone, according to Matthew, in front of the tomb? It was great. And how bad was the earthquake? It was great. How much joy did they have? They had joy as big as the earthquake. 
They had joy as substantive and solid and heavy as that stone. They had great joy. They don't understand beans theologically about what's going on. But they know this, that that man who has the words to life, that man who did not talk to me as a second-class citizen, but that man who took me seriously both as sinner and as believer... He was dead, and he is alive, and they hightail it to go tell the disciples and the brothers and to delight in it, and they have great joy. Now, I, I, I want to read, <clears throat> read this before we leave. I, this, is, this will be quoted thousands of times, millions of times around the world today. But it is good for our hearts to hear this. Paul writes... In 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive when He's writing this, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why did men who stumbled over themselves, when they lived with Jesus, they lived and were tutored directly by the Son of God, they stumbled over themselves, but why was it that when you come to the book of Acts, that when they are anointed with the Holy Spirit, that they are like different people, it's because they not only knew that the crucifixion was true, but that the resurrection was true. They love preaching that in the book of Acts. And the amazing thing about what Paul is writing here, he's saying, look, I'm writing this to you, and if you think that this is just a myth... Tons of people who saw him in his risen state, they're still alive. Go check with them. And what I'm wanting us to say this morning is, look, this is not a myth. That this is not something so that preachers can just put people to sleep on Easter mornings and say things like, and now he who is able to bring life out of death, may he go with you. Well, you're hearing that and just going... No, it's to say men who were naturally skeptical were forced to say, He died and He rose, not as a phantom. He rose with pores and hair and feet and arms and legs. Everything He said is true. You see, and that brings us to the response. You can't make yourself have joy, but, but does this change anything for you? I mean, could it be as real as, could the resurrection speak to somebody who has panic attacks? Could the resurrection speak directly to the person recently unemployed? Could the resurrection speak directly to the person who is at their wit's end with a difficult child? 
that it is the ultimate demonstration that, look, when I say to you that I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, when I, when I say to you that this old earth that's wonderful but it's cursed, that one day it will be no more and there'll be a new, a new heavens and a new earth, that will be your real home. That's where my people's citizenship is. And all these things that plague you will be gone. And all that is good that you love will be retained and made new. Is that real to us? And I want to end with this. Um, I, I, I saw an interview, really it was more like a forum on, uh, online, and it was, it was uh, a forum with Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor, a lot of you would know that name, he, um, becoming kind of a prolific writer and becoming very influential in the Christian world. Pastor's in New York, he's in our denomination. And uh, after he released a book called The Reason for God, he did a book tour, and instead of going to like Christian bookstores, he went to places like Google headquarters and uh, to Berkeley and Stanford. And he, he was doing a forum in this book tour at Columbia University. And so there was a guy there moderating the discussion. At the very end of this forum, this man asked him on stage, "You seem to have a lot of peace." And that's true. Tim Keller, he's kind of, he's kind of almost like. Shale and Monk-like. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, bald and just sort of in, in, in control. Except he's like 6'4 and doesn't know martial arts, as, as far as I know. But he's sitting there, and this guy asked him, uh, you know, how, you seem to have a lot of peace. Why do you have so much peace? And he said, well, you know, uh, recently I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And so I, I, I received treatment for it, and then I, I was convalescing. And so for the first time in decades... I had nothing to do. And so he tackled this 800-page book by a guy named N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. I cannot, I cannot recommend everything N.T. writes, but on the resurrection, he is magnificent. So he tackles this 800-page book. He says, I'm, I'm a fast reader, but I had to read every day for three or four weeks. Just read, 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 read. He said, and here's the amazing thing. Before I read this book, did I believe in the resurrection? Yeah, totally. Did I preach it? Yeah, absolutely. Was I confident? Yes. Did it give me peace? Sure, it gave me peace. You see, he got to the end of this book, and when he, when he makes it across the Jordan, these 800 pages, what washed over him was a sense of, whoa, that actually happened. And he said it, it, it felt in his heart of hearts like a game changer. That he said he thought, that he thought his confidence in the resurrection had gone down to the basement of his heart. But he said he realized that there were maybe three or four more floors and it just went... Dish, 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 dish. And he acknowledged maybe there are floors still to go. I don't know. But don't you think that's all of us? that whether this is brand new to you or you've been around it for decades, that there are places in our hearts where this hasn't gone, that if He really rose from the dead, it changes everything. I'll say this and I'm done. If you're here this morning and you don't have that great joy, the way to get it is not to walk out of here and say, I'm going to be more joyful. The way to have it is for us to get on our knees and say, Lord, I can't change me, but you can change me. I can't take away my sin. I can't take away my 
boredom with Scripture. I cannot take away all the disconnects between the resurrection and me, but you can. Make me see how this changed everything for body and soul, for me and the entire Holy Catholic Church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for your word, which is true food, thank you for the resurrection, which really happened. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we praise you that there you are at the Father's right hand, not a phantom, not a ghost somewhere in the universe. There you are, seated as a real man, fully God at the right hand of your Father and ours. We love you. We praise you that you rose from the dead. We pray this will go down to the deepest floors of our own hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen.